Well, hello. I understand I'm to wish you a happy Aloha Friday. Did I say it right? Oh, my goodness. I can't believe you're here. How many of you left your job to come here? How many of you left family to come here? You all left something to get here. We know that. And we thank you. Oh, Jenny and my husband Ray and I, we've been so excited to be with you. We are asking the Lord Jesus Christ to meet with each one of us in renewing power and through his Holy Spirit for his glory and our joy to come down, to open his word to us, to give us ears to hear. We're so excited to be with you. Now, I've been assigned the glorious and happy task of talking about community and friendship. We thank Kirsten for her sweet introduction to that topic. Mm, thank you. I've chosen as my text for this topic Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. Would you turn there with me? Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, and listen as I read it. I'm reading from the English Standard Version mostly because my husband is here and he helped translate it. Do you all use the ESV in, on Hawaii? No? Yes? Yes, some of you do. Good. I'm glad. Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word for us this afternoon. I think that if we had time to go around this room and I were to ask you, in all of your experience in your life so far, which experience has brought you the most joy? Many of you would answer by describing a relationship, maybe a parent, a spouse, a child, a friend. And if I asked you, of all of your experiences on earth so far, which has brought you the most pain? many of us would answer similarly by talking about a relationship. You see, there's a real tension here 
Because the very thing that can bring us the most joy can also bring us the most pain. Not surprisingly, then, we tend to withdraw, to cover up, to surround ourselves with enough defense mechanisms not to get hurt again. We want to escape those friendships that hurt us. But the Bible never leaves any room to withdraw. Think of what we're told in his word. Bear each other's burdens. Love each other deeply from the heart. Show each other that you belong to Jesus by how you love each other. Outdo each other in kindness and honor. Well, our text today is going to talk to those very experiences of love and pain as we are part of the community of Christ together as we go deeply into serving him together. Now, our text is part of Romans 12, and I believe that these verses are written to believers. How They relate to how we treat each other in the body of Christ. The reason is, I look at the context. You know Romans 12, the first two verses, Paul's talking to brothers and sisters, I appeal to you. To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, that's certainly written to Christians. And then he goes on to, to speak about gifts of the Spirit in verses uh, 3 through 8. And then we come to our passage. So if we were just to flow out of the natural thought of things, I believe this is written to us as Christians. How are we to form Christian community, friendship with one another in the body of Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, answers the question, how do we apply the gospel to everyday decisions, actions, and words as we live in community with each other? Let's look for Jesus in these verses. Jesus loves me, therefore, what is the implication in how I should love others? Jesus blesses those who persecute him, Therefore, what is the implication for me when others hassle me and make my life difficult? Jesus overcomes evil with good. Therefore, what is the implication when I am confronted with evil? Let's keep this in mind as we work our way through this passage phrase by phrase. Now, I've broken this down into three evidences of a grace-filled community as we're in friendship and community with each other. The first one I see in verses 9 through 13 is authentic love. And then in verses 14 through 16, the second one is heartfelt humility. And the third one in verses 17 through 21 is costly forgiveness. Let's just walk through these verses together and see what the Lord has to teach us about friendship and community among each other. All right, verse 9. Authentic love. Authentic love, first of all, is sincere. Look at verse 9. Let love be genuine, sincere, real, true, honest, unfeigned, wholehearted. Why this admonition? Well, I think it's because it's our nature to love insincerely. When I love, I tend to love for what it'll bring to me. Ray and I met 
47 years ago on the campus of Wheaton College, and I did all within my power to catch his eye because I wanted the benefits of his love. It was all about me. It wasn't about him. It was all about me. Oh, my. I'm so sorry, Ray. I've learned a lot in these years. You see, insincere love loves for the benefit of yourself. Genuine love loves for the benefit of the other. True love, sincere love, authentic love is always other-oriented, not self-seeking. And the gospel shows me how to love sincerely because Christ loves us that way. Churches, I think, especially women's groups, can develop a culture of niceness. Perhaps you've been involved in a situation like this where you walk in Sunday morning and really you've had a bad Sunday morning and someone will say, oh, how are you? And you'll smile and say, oh, I'm just fine. How are you? But underneath, you're not really fine. All the, the while, there's a, a tension, a spirit of loneliness or fear or sadness simmering underneath my surface smile. The rest of our passage shows us how to leave that fake culture of niceness behind and enter into this authentic, genuine love that the Apostle Paul is calling us to. Look at the second part of verse 9. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Hate. He's, he's telling us to hate, and I think in this context, he's telling us to hate that self-seeking, self-gratification that comes from trying to love someone else in order to build myself up. I'm supposed to be horrified by it, abhor it, Janny, and hold fast to, cling to that expression of love toward another that makes every effort to meet the needs of that other person without drawing attention to myself. Authentic love in Christian community is genuine. We see in the next verse, verse 10, authentic love is devoted. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That phrase, brotherly affection, we're part of a family. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, we're, we belong to the household of God. We are to love one another as if we're related. And we're called to go beyond just sincere love. We're to honor one another. That means to esteem, to show high regard, respect, appreciation, consideration. And, and there's a, a little bit of a sense of competition here. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another. I believe, particularly among women, the opposite of showing honor is gossip. Gossip, a lack of honor and devotion to one another, they all come from the central source of sin, the promotion of self. All of us are naturally self-oriented. That's why honoring someone else is so hard. And, the, and gossip feeds that self-promotion. Gossip feeds our natural curiosity about someone else's faults. 1 Timothy 5 links busybodies with gossipers, that natural curiosity. Gossip feeds our desire to be the center of attention. Did you hear about? 
gossip feeds our desire to elevate ourselves above others. I don't know about you, but in my perverse sinfulness, I'm so sorry to admit this to you, but it's true. If I can say something, this is so bad, but if I can say something a little derogatory about someone else, it, it feeds my own anxieties. It soothes them. and I don't know, it just makes me not feel quite as bad about my own hang-ups because I compare myself. Gossip has a way of doing that among us, as women especially. Let's guard how we speak about each other. Ray and I have a saying, is their name safe in our house behind closed doors? Oh, let's guard each other's names. There's a, a story told of a, a young monk who had gossiped about someone, and he came to the father of the monastery where he was serving, <clears throat> and he said, Father, forgive me, I've gossiped, and I don't know what I should do. And uh, the father gave the monk a pillowcase, a bag full of feathers, and he said, what I want you to do is go around the village and put a feather on the door of everyone whom you think has heard what you said. And so the monk went and did that. There were quite a few houses, and he came back uh, to the father of the monastery and said, I I've done what you've asked, now what should I do? And the father said, well, now I want you to go back around the village and collect every feather. And the monk got very excited. He said, there's no way I could do that. By now the wind has blown those feathers all over the place. And the father said, so with your words. Guard them carefully. Oh, let's treat each other tenderly. Let's be careful with what we say about each other. Let's love each other with brotherly affection. Let's be women who show respect and honor to devote and devotion to one another. To be devoted to another woman requires a certain amount of dethroning of our own self-image. This is hard because I think as women, we like to play what I call the princess game. In the princess game, I'm the princess, and I'm on the throne. My interests and needs should be recognized as most important. My ambition should be considered the most worthwhile. My talents praised. Oh, my wisdom acknowledged. You hear it? Do you feel it? Have you ever felt that way? My opinions sought. But it's in relationships that we're dethroned. It's in relationships in community among our friends where we take off that crown and we polish it and we place it on the head of a sister. And we take off our robe of what we feel are our rights. And we wrap it around our sister. You see, when love is devoted, it's continually looking for ways to step down and lift someone else up. That's what real Christian community is. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. Let's keep your finger in, in Romans 12. And let's just turn over to Ephesians 4 for a minute. This is worth reading together. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32 says this. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We're to give grace to those who hear us talking, not gossip. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Look at that little phrase with me. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit by how we talk about each other. I had a wonderful mother-in-law. Ray's mom loves the Lord deeply. She's with Jesus now. And she used to tell me from this verse, she said, Janie, do you want to see the Holy Spirit cry? Talk poorly about the body of Christ. Oh, authentic love creates an alternative culture where our names are safe with each other. It's a culture of honor called the Church of Jesus Christ. It's a culture where people are lifted up, their accomplishments celebrated, their strengths admired, their weaknesses forgiven. No more negative scrutiny. We outdo one another in showing honor. Now let's look at verse 11. Authentic love is eager to serve. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. It's very interesting to me to note here that Paul puts serving the Lord in the midst of honoring and loving each other. Christ considers your genuine devotion to the body of Christ as a service to himself. You're serving the Lord when you honor one another. He says, don't lack in zeal. Be passionate. There must be an eagerness, an active enthusiasm. To be involved in people's lives is hard work. One of the ways I can serve Jesus Christ is by devoting myself to his church. Now, how can this be? It makes sense only because we're all part of Christ. We're part of his body. Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. The Bible teaches that we're not just Christ's bride, we're his body. We complete Christ. We fill him out. Ephesians 1.22 and 23, God appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You see, you are not just part of an organization when you join a church. You're part of a living organism. We're united organically. The body of Christ is a growing body. You're part of Christ's body if you are in Jesus Christ. You're part of his fullness. So when I look at you, I'm looking at part of Jesus. When I serve you, I'm serving Jesus. When I talk poorly about you, I'm talking poorly about Jesus. Think of Saul on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. He asks the Lord, who are you, Lord? And what does Jesus answer in Acts chapter 9, 5? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He didn't say, I am Jesus and you're persecuting my brothers and sisters. Jesus took Saul's persecution of the brethren personally. 
To speak poorly of a brother or sister in Christ is to speak poorly of Christ. When we treat the Lord's people with tenderness and reverence, we're treating the Lord Jesus Christ well. Let's guard our unity. Let's share the spirit of Christ and let our differences shrink and fade. Let's be women who focus on Jesus and let secondary issues fade away. As we work together to serve him in our community, as we're building friendships, there will always be secondary issues. New building projects, new ministries developing, which Sunday school curriculum to use, whom to have speak at certain events, what color curtains to put in the nursery, what kind of format we should have for worship. There are all these things to think and talk about. But but let's focus on Jesus. (laughs) It's not easy to be a member of the body of Christ. You can't have close family relationships without getting hurt in a church just the way you do in a physical family. But authentic love is eager to serve rather than gossip and criticize. And then number four, authentic love is joyfully, patiently, prayerfully generous. Look at verses 12 through 13. Paul admonishes us to rejoice in hope. Now, we could talk about hope in a lot of different ways, but let's think of it in our context as far as community, friendship, serving one another, serving the Lord eagerly. Well, I think we could take it to mean rejoice in the hope that serving Jesus and his people is worth it. Losing myself and others can bring me real joy, not the false sense of satisfaction that self-love can deliver. Also, we can be hopeful that we won't always be this way. God, through the wonder and grace of his gospel, is transforming us to be more and more conformed to the image of his son. So we don't have to lose hope with one another. We're told to be patient in tribulation. Our response should be when we we have difficulty with, with each other in our community. Well, That's okay. This has come to me with God's stamp of approval on it. And if it's okay with God, then it's going to be okay with me. I can leave this difficult relationship in his hands and be patient. We'll talk more about that in verse 14, but let's go on to the next phrase. Faithful or constant in prayer. Keep on praying. Don't give up. Hope and patience are very closely linked to prayer here. If you find yourself discouraged or frustrated with how relationships are going in your local Christian community, pray about it. Instead of reaming that person out in your head, commune with God. Talk to him about it. Don't complain against them. Talk to your father. And then verse 13. Share with God's people who are in need. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Be hospitable. There are many kinds of needs in the Christian community, many things that can be shared among God's family. But in order to meet those needs, we have to know each other. We have to get in close. I want to encourage you to be in a small group. Have some people whose needs you know because you're close enough to them to hear about them. 
Well, the first evidence of a grace-filled community is authentic love. Let's go on to this second evidence here in verses 14 through 16. A heartfelt humility. Look at verse 14. Humility intercedes for annoying people. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. We're told here to bless, to ask God to care for that person, to show mercy to that person, to to guard and protect that person who persecutes me. Now, in my church, nobody really persecutes me as we would normally take that word persecute. But persecute can also mean to hassle or to persistently annoy. Do you have someone in your life who persistently annoys you and you know you should love her, but it's hard? You see, our natural reaction is to curse or you know, wish evil on someone, anyone who makes my life difficult for me. But God tells us to wish his blessing on them. Why? Because those feelings of, I don't deserve this, Lord, or I don't even need this right now, those feelings are wrong. We're in this together as a community. And whatever hassles or persecutions or irritations or frustrations we bring upon each other come with God's okay stamped on them. Now, you may be thinking right now, and we will get to this later, but Jana, you don't understand. This woman is sinning against me. If she is, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Fine, practice Matthew 18 according to Matthew 18. We won't go there right now. That's a whole other message. Go to her if you feel constrained to. But, but could I ask this of you? Let's be women who in our Christian communities make sure that we differentiate between bad feelings and sin, hurt feelings and sin. Verse 12, remember, says be patient in tribulation. Humility intercedes for annoying people. Lord, here she comes again. Bless her. Have mercy on her. Help me to welcome her. Humility also embraces another's emotional responses to life. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Now, when I was studying for this, you know, I come to a verse like that, and I think, well, duh. You know, I mean, that seems... Why would he put that there? Doesn't it seem that, yes, if someone's crying, you're going to cry with them, and if they're rejoicing, you're going to rejoice with them? Well, I think it's a curious admonition, and I think it's here for a very specific reason. I think our natural tendency is toward jealousy and envy when someone is particularly blessed. I don't know about you, but I've had this happen in my own life. Um, One area of contention and jealousy in my own life has been cars. I'll tell you a little story about the Ortlands. Um, When I met Ray, I didn't know he was that smart. He's really very smart, but we met in college, and I was the student, and he was having fun. And uh, 
Then he went to seminary, and we got married, and he was so smart. I mean, he just studied all the time. And so he got his master's of theology, and then we moved, and, and he took his first pastorate, and he went back to school and got another master's in Hebrew at UC Berkeley while he was pastoring. And, and then he, he, he came to me and said, Honey, I, I think I'd like to get some more education. And by that time, I thought, Well, bachelor's, two masters, this must be a PhD. And indeed it was. It took me a while to warm up to it, but eventually we moved to Scotland. I don't know why it took me so long to think twice about moving to Scotland. But we moved to Scotland, and while we were there, we suffered some financial difficulties, and we had to sell our car. And uh, we lived a, about a mile walk to the village, and we had four little children, and so it meant that for us to bring in food, I'd have to walk and get the food and bring it back. And I found myself complaining about this. I mean, I did it pretty cheerily for the first six or eight months, but then after a while, I just started complaining. And I started bargaining with God. I started saying, now, Lord, if you ever give us a car, I don't care what kind of car it is. I will be so happy for whatever kind of car it is. And sure enough, we got, came back to America, and he gave us a car through my parents. And I did really well on my promise to the Lord for about six months. And then uh, the car that my parents had given us was a, what was it, an Impala, Chevy Impala, two-door sports kind of car. It had six seatbelts. But we were a family of six with three boys, and our oldest boy was getting tall, and it was hard for all six of us to pack in there. And I started seeing minivans. They were really big in the mid-'80s, really big. And, oh, I was lusting after minivans. I just thought, now, Lord, I know. I, I promised you, and I'm so sorry. I'm going back in that promise. But I would be so happy. I would never complain about a car again if you would just let us get a minivan. Well, I had a friend, Debbie, at the church we were planting there in Eugene, Oregon. And um, she and I were really quite close. And she knew about this prayer of mine. And she called me one Saturday saying, uh, Janie, I have some good news, and I have some bad news. I said, really? Well, tell me the bad news first, then tell me the good news. So she said, well, the bad news is I think this is going to be hard on you, and I wanted you to know before you saw it at church tomorrow morning. And the good news is we just bought a minivan, and she hung up really quickly. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sorry to say, but... But she was right. It was hard for me for a little while to rejoice. She only had two boys, and they were tiny. They were just little boys. <laughs> and it was hard for me. I wasn't able to rejoice in her joy. Now, by the time Sunday morning came along, I was happy for her. I really was. I'm glad she gave me a heads up, though. Could have been a hard <laughs> Sunday morning. What about that admonition, weep with those who weep? I, I think oftentimes we can feel maybe a little self-righteousness when someone has hard times, like, oh, I, I wonder why God's allowing that to happen to them. Maybe he's disciplining them. We're so suspicious of others and so sure of ourselves. Job 12.5 says, In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. 
so true. Heartfelt humility, the kind that's being spoken of here in verse 15, embraces another's joys and sorrows. It seeks to know and understand the inner world of others. Heartfelt humility stops living on the surface with each other and goes deep in joy and sorrow with her sisters. Verse 16, our third point here. Heartfelt humility leaves no room for hurt feelings. Look at verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Be agreeable, be pleasing, fit in together. Not prickly. Don't hold an excessively high opinion of yourself. See, I, I think as women, not only do we play the princess game where we want to be on the throne, we also play the comparison game. I think this is particularly hard for women because we are so conscious of the external, our, our clothes, our hair, our houses, our talents, our energy levels, our physical appearance. And then we think, if only I had her personality or her brains or her money, then I could. But the com comparison game wreaks havoc on any church particularly on the group of women within that church because everyone loses when we play this game no one ever wins in the comparison game if you compare yourself and you come out a little bit better well then you become proud and if you compare yourself and she comes out on top then you might struggle with envy or insecurity shyness withdrawal 2 Corinthians 10, 17 says that we're not to compare ourselves to anyone but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who gives approval on what is truly valuable. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I must never think I'm too good to befriend someone or extend kindness to someone. That word haughty, I... I take it to mean I, I, I shouldn't be surprised at anything someone might say about me because if that person knew the real, real Janie Ortland way down deep, she would have a lot more to say. I like how Jonathan Edwards speaks of pride. He says this, Spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others. But a humble Christian is as suspicious of nothing in the world as he is of his own heart. The proud person is apt to find fault with other believers and to be quick to note their weaknesses. But the humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart and is so concerned about it that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. He's apt to esteem others better than himself. One of the youth ministers that Ray and I worked with in California taught us something that really has helped me along this line of putting others first, of, of real humility. You know what it's like when you walk in a room? Maybe it happened to some of you tonight. I had to fight this feeling of you walk in the room and you think, oh, did I wear the right thing? Will there be anybody there I know? Where should I sit? What about when we go to eat? Will I have someone to sit by? You know, those thoughts of how will I fit in? Oftentimes that will happen on a Sunday morning too. And this particular youth pastor 
whom we worked under, taught us this phrase. He said, be a there-you-are person rather than a here-I-am person. A there-you-are person thinks, I wonder if there'll be somebody new there who's feeling just as shy as I am. I wonder how I could serve that woman. I wonder what her needs are. Instead of, well, here I am. I hope somebody will notice. I hope somebody will talk to me. There you are, people, are truly humble. They're looking out for others. They're not holding an excessively high opinion of themselves. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Letters to an American Lady, wrote this in one of his letters. May God's grace give you the necessary humility. Try not to think, much less speak, of their sins. One's own are a much more profitable theme. And if on consideration one can find no faults on one's own side, then cry for mercy, for this must be a most dangerous delusion. We need to love each other deeply right on down to that painful area, right to the end. And we need to keep on loving each other, even when we get to know everything about that woman. We need to refuse to let go of each other. We can't be loners anymore. In each of our lives here, there's a can of worms. There's skeletons in our closets. We're willing to be known up to a point. That's safe, but it's superficial. That's fragile love, and it's not worth very much. The world can love you that way. Let's learn to penetrate deeply into the lives of those to whom God has called us. And so we've seen authentic love, heartfelt humility. Let's go to these last few verses and talk about costly forgiveness. Costly forgiveness, verses 17 through 21. You see, as we seek to love each other sincerely, devotedly, generously, and humbly, we are going to be hurt. We're going to be taken advantage of. We're going to be misunderstood. We all know what it's like to be terribly hurt by someone, their words or their actions. And we want to overcome evil with evil. At least I do. My reaction is, how could they? Why would they? And I don't know about you, but Sometimes I like to play with my pain. Reminds me of when our first three children were, were very little. We had our, our first three in less than three years, and our oldest boy, Eric, was about two and a half when number three came along. He, had already sh- he was a year when his sister came, and then 18 months later his brother came. And he didn't have much of a babyhood, you know. He, I always had a baby in my arms when he was around. And I remember one morning in particular, he wasn't quite three yet, um, but, you know, I was trying to play with the children. I was nursing Dane, and Krista was at my feet. Um, and Eric came into the room, and he started crying. I want my blankie, Mommy. I really want my blankie. And he just kept crying, and I tried to encourage him to go get it, but he wanted me to go get it, so I put Dane down. Dane started screaming, and I went and got Eric's blankie, and I cuddled him up with me, and I was thinking, oh, what a good mom I am, you know? Oh, it didn't last long. 
he came on with me, and, and Dane was feeding again calmly. Krista was playing, and Eric had his little thumb in his mouth and was, you know, fingering the satin edge of his blankie. And after a few minutes of that, he took his thumb out of his mouth and started crying again. I want my blankie, Mommy. I really, really want my blankie. And he just cried and cried and cried. And by this time, I wasn't such the great Christian mother. I was thinking, oh, what does this child want? I said, Eric, what's the matter, darling? You have your blankie. Well, that boy stopped long enough to say, well, I guess I didn't really want it. I just wanted to cry for it. And then he just kept crying, I want my blankie. I want my blankie. Now, in his little two-and-a-half-year-old heart, he knew there was some angst going on, and he wanted to cry, but he didn't know how to express it. He just wanted to play with that pain. I think we do that sometimes, too. We get hurt, and we tend to replay the scene in our mind. Each time we come a little bit more dismayed at the injustice of it all, we continue to mull it over sometimes with different conclusions, but each time we always come out on top. And the hurt expands. It's especially compounded when the perpetrator of this hurt is a Christian. Somehow we can understand it if they're outside the family of faith, but in the family of faith, oh, it hurts. And then we're convicted because we know we're supposed to forgive, and we find ourselves caught in a cycle of hurt and anger, and then trying to figure out how to deal with the hurt and anger, and trying to forgive, and then we have the added complication of guilt over that anger. And sometimes we even imagine a scenario where that person finally gets what they did wrong and comes and grovels at our feet, and we get to forgive them. I hope you're laughing because I'm not the only one who's felt this way before. Oh, what should we do? Romans 12 teaches us. Romans 12 teaches us how to live in community with people who have hurt us. Look at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Why is this so hard? We see the word honorable here. Remember verse 12, outdo one another in showing honor. Show respect, esteem, regard, defer to that person who's treated you in a bad way, maybe hurt you seriously. Why is it so hard to not repay evil with evil. Because as sinners, we're prejudiced to hate other people's sins more than we hate our own. Sin's twistedness shows itself most blatantly in making a sinner into a superior self-righteous finger pointer. You see, the sin is always located outside of me in someone else. Well, if they had or hadn't, it's their fault. Jesus uh, speaks of repaying no one evil for evil in Matthew 5.19 when he encourages us, us not even to resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, What does Jesus mean here? Surely he doesn't mean that we can't defend ourselves against assault or flee from evil. Jesus means don't be the one to escalate injury and insult. 
The slap here is an open-handed slap of insult. Jesus' focus here is on individual conduct and the tendency to seek personal revenge when we're insulted. Romans 5, I'm sorry, Romans 15, verses 5 through 7, says it this way. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. There's that word harmony again. In accord with Christ Jesus, that you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. How has our Lord Jesus Christ welcomed us? We who slapped and spit upon him. That is how we're to treat those who insult us and hurt us. Open-armed embrace. The opposite of repaying is absorbing that hurt, not paying it back. Of welcoming and accepting those who we might consider our enemy. All restoration begins by going back to God. A heart aloof from God creates aloofness, finger-pointing. But when we understand the cross of Jesus Christ, when we think about the implications of all it took for Christ to accept and welcome us, we're helped to let evil go unmatched. Verses 18 and 19, costly forgiveness steps aside and waits for God to act. I love verse 18. Look at it with me. If possible. Don't you love those two words? And then the next phrase, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Paul recognizes that it is not always possible to be at peace with everyone, even when you make the effort. So far as it depends on you, we're being told, be worried about your part, not their response. If they don't respond in a way that you like, or need, or feel is right, that's okay. As far as it depends on you, you've done your part. And then look at verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Never. Note the word never. Have you ever heard someone tell you, never say never? <laughs> well, if God says never, let's be women who listen. Leave it could be translated give place. In a sense, Paul is saying, step aside. Give up your seat, your place of right and honor here. Step aside, controlling your urge for revenge, and let God's wrath be the final say in how you are treated. Why? Because God's word says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He's citing from Deuteronomy there. Paul is saying, let our feelings of revenge be softened by realizing that God will make all things right. And that he will visit his wrath on those who deserve it. Within the church, as we seek to outdo one another in showing honor, we should create an environment of trust rather than negative scrutiny. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. 
Only God is competent to judge. Tim Keller, in his study on Romans, describes how this can help us when God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He gives us three ways it helps us. First of all, only God is qualified to judge. Because I deserve judgment myself. I am not qualified to judge that person who's hurt me. Secondly, only God knows enough to be judged. He knows what that offender has faced and gone through and deserves. And then thirdly, Jesus took the judgment of God. Either this person who's offended me will repent, and Jesus will take their judgment unto himself. Or that person will not repent, and God will judge it. Either way, I'm not involved. Solomon agrees. He says this in Proverbs 20, verse 22, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. God will deliver his wrath on those who deserve it. He'll make all things right. Let's be women who can wait. Let's not take matters into our own hands. And then finally, our last two verses. Costly forgiveness overcomes evil with good. Look at verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Very interesting phrase, burning coals on his head. There are three or four different ways to interpret this. One way is that back in biblical times, people would carry coals on their head in a little metal pan, and if your fire died, you'd send your servant next door to get some coals, and so your neighbor, even though he was offended at you, might heap extra coals in there just to be generous and shame you, even though you were you would hurt him. And, and some interpreters take this to mean, this phrase right here, you will heap burning coals on his head, that Christians are to do good to people so they'll feel, feel ashamed and repent. Oh, I just don't see that. Where in the Bible do we see that taught? There are many one another's in the Bible. Love one another. Serve one another. Forgive one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. But I've never read shame one another into repentance. Yell at them loudly enough. Make them feel so bad about themselves that they'll repent. The ESV study Bible helps me to understand that phrase in this verse. When it says this quote about burning coals is taken from Proverbs 25, and it teaches that in the Old Testament... Burning coals always represent punishment. And so they interpret it that Paul is repeating the thought of Romans 12, 19, leave it to God. Leave it to God. That Christians are to do good to wrongdoers, recognizing that God will set all things right. They can leave it with him. And our final verse, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, how do we do that? What does that look like? 
there's a tension here in this final verse. It's evil versus good, and one is going to win. As we are waiting for God to act, as we're, in a sense, stepping aside, leaving it to the wrath of God, do we just sit and twiddle our thumbs? I don't think so. I think God is calling us to certain actions. How do I personally, with God's help, try to overcome evil with good when I feel I've been wronged? Well, first of all, I talk to God about it. It's not as if he doesn't know what happened. But oftentimes, as I'm praying about it and verbalizing it to him, it softens my heart. It's just so good to know that he hears, he cares, he's at work. Sometimes that just opens my heart up to be able to forgive that person. Don't gripe to someone else about it. There's no need to bring another sister into that situation. If necessary, go to the person who hurt you, but please, again, be careful. Be sure it was a sin, not just your own touchiness. We always talk to the person, not about the person. Another action we can take is to make a vow to God that you will stop playing with that pain in your mind. You will stop dwelling on it. Elizabeth Elliot says this, Forgiveness is a relinquishment, a laying down. No one can make you forgive. Jesus laid down his own life. No one took it from him. I don't know if you're hurting over an action someone has taken against you tonight wouldn't surprise me because in a family we get hurt. We don't even know we're hurting someone, but we do. I would encourage you to vow to stop dwelling on that. Make a promise to God. Say, Lord, with your help, every time this pain comes into my mind, I'm going to ask you to bless that person who hurt me. Sometimes in my own life, I've had to do something a little bit more active. Um, sometimes I've had to make, in a sense, a physical offering. There was one time, long, long time ago, early in our ministry, when I felt someone had really wronged my husband. And I, uh, for my husband's sake, felt righteous indignation. This person should not have treated my husband this way. And I was having the hardest time forgiving him, forgiving this person. And uh, I, I played with the pain a lot in my head. I thought, you know, this is what it's going to look like when he sees what he's done and when he comes and asks forgiveness. And I'd play it over and over again, and then I'd feel guilty, you know, that cycle. And so I'd ask God to help me forgive this man, and, and then I'd start forgiving him. But then I'd feel guilty that I wasn't holding up Ray's honor. You know, I should be mad at this person for my husband's sake. Crazy, crazy. So one day, I thought, well, maybe I'll solve it by writing a letter to this man. Not to mail it, but just get all my grievances out. So I took out a piece of paper, and I wrote this man a letter and just let him have it in that letter. Then I tucked that away in my notebook, and all along I was asking the Lord to help me forgive him. <gasps> crazy. And, and so I'd almost get to the verge of where I really was able to forgive this man, and then I'd feel like, 
oh, well, I don't want to forget how wrong he was to Ray until he asked us to forgive him, so I'd take out the letter and reread it again, and I could never figure out why the cycle didn't stop. Crazy, crazy lady here you have speaking to you. <laughs> Finally, one day, I said, Lord, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to vow to stop thinking about this pain, and I'm going to ask you to grant me forgiveness toward this man. And I took that letter out of my notebook, and I took it out to our little garage. I tore it up into tiny pieces, and I lit a fire to it. And I said, Lord, I'm not very good at this forgiving thing, but I'm going to promise you just as this letter is burning up that I'm not going to vow on this hurt, and I'm going to ask you to help me forgive this person. And I promise you tonight that every time his name comes into my head or heart, that I'm going to ask you to bless him. Offer your hurt as a sweet-smelling sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ. He understands. He wants you to be able to forgive those who've hurt you. Extend kindness just as Christ has extended kindness to you. Kindness asks, how can I make this easy on the other person? How can I relieve them from the guilt? How can I absorb what they've done to me and leave them alone? How can I av avoid embarrassing her or putting her on the spot or shaming her? Let's be women who prefer losing to going to all-out war. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, 1 Corinthians 6, 7 says. Why is it so necessary to win? Ray's dad used to tell me when I'd be grumbling about someone being mean to me, just out-nice them, Janny. Just out-nice them. To be followers of Christ means that we treat each other with authentic love, heartfelt humility, and costly forgiveness. That is how Christ treats us. Now we have the opportunity to extend that grace to others and create a culture of honor and grace and acceptance. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Let me pray for us.